yeah, I just kept on pushing and climbing and reached a point that I couldn't hold on anymore. It was beyond my ability and fell off and woke, woke up three or four days later in a hospital intensive care to learn that I was paralyzed and really just starting a whole new life. Um, so I'm paralyzed completely from the chest down, so below kind of armpit level. I don't have any movement or sensation. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. Thank you for joining me on another week of Ultra Habits. We are joined by a truly remarkable guest. We have Karen Dark. Now, I was introduced to Karen Dark through Stephen Kotler's work on Flow. Most of you would know Stephen Kotler is the current guru and subject matter expert when it comes to all things flow. And he had some writing there uh, that had related to Karen. And I was like, yeah, I just got to get her on the show now. Karen describes herself as the modern-day alchemist. She's passionate about turning real shitty situations into opportunity and transforming the hard shit into gold. She loves to explore, have adventures, stay healthy, and to write. She says her mission is to inspire and impact people through sharing her stories and experiences, the credible power we actually have in us behind all of that behind all of our pain, our suffering, is a story. If we're skillful, we can leverage that story to really create great. And that's what we're here to talk about. Now, at the age of 21, Karen was paralyzed from the chest down. She was a keen runner, climber, and orienteer. And initially, she thought, look, I'd rather be dead than paralyzed. And she realized with the right support, creativity, and perseverance, Shit was possible. And it, you know, it was thanks to those ingredients that she's been able to, to live a very remarkable life. Now, she spent over a decade as a full-time athlete. She was a silver medalist in the London 2012 Paralympics and became a Paralympic champion in Rio 2016. She says her Paralympic journey has been a roller coaster. You know, she's written the highs of medals and the lows of injuries and near-death experiences. Her life journey has called for total commitment, determination, and resilience, and it has taken her on an incredible inner and outer journey. That's what we're here to talk about. We talk a lot about flow. We talk a lot about leveraging shitty situations, finding what is the opportunity in this? What is, where is the gold? And how do we then leverage that to move forward? I think Karen's story really polarizes what we feel you know, day to day or week to week or month to month, or maybe we had a shitty year, but Karen has had a situation that, um, you know, she has had to live with and she's found a way to pull greatness out of that. And, you know, we can all learn from that, whether, you know, it's in our job, it's as a parent running our business, how do we, as we, in, you know, we encounter challenging situations, roadblocks, how do we find the magic? How do we see the opportunity and then leverage that to continue to move forward? Because it really is a superpower. It is a competitive advantage. So anyways, folks, I'm going to get out of here. I leave you in the capable hands of Karen. Enjoy the episode. 
I hope you do get a lot out of it. I did. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. Peace. Karen, good morning from Australia and welcome to the Ultra Habits show. I've had some drama with the baby early morning. You've had some drama with time zone differences with myself, (laughs) but we have made it and we are truly, truly grateful to have you here on the show. Thank you. Yeah, good to meet you. Um, Well, we'll see what unfolds in the next little while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I came across you through one of Stephen Kotler's articles. I think, you know, I'm a big Stephen Kotler fan. I like his material. It's kind of out there. It's a bit weird. It's all things high performance. And uh, yeah, it really caught my eye. And I dove into your story and wanted the opportunity to unpack some of the gems here on the show. So, you know, for those that don't know you, um, I guess we can sum you up as really an adventure athlete, someone that really pushes yourself beyond the limits. And we're going to get into what that actually means, but we're going to go back into your history. So as I understand it, you were a, a pretty keen runner, recliner, and orienteer but something happened in your life when you were 21 years old that really shifted and changed the trajectory for you. Can you unpack with us what actually happened when you were 21 years old? So yeah, when I was that age, I, as you said, I was into being outdoors really and in whatever way possible, but particularly with a passion for climbing and orienteering, running in the mountains. Um, but I had a rock climbing accident at age 21 and fell from a cliff in Scotland. I was leading the climb, which means you're the first person up it. And yeah, when I look back at it, I realized I should have backed down. My body was screaming at me or my intuition was screaming at me to come down, but I'm so, I was so headstrong and continue to be, but I try and I think over the years I've gradually developed a bit more connection with my instinct and to listen at a different level that I couldn't then. But yeah, I just kept on pushing and climbing and reached a point that I couldn't hold on anymore. It was beyond my ability and fell off and woke, woke up three or four days later in a hospital intensive care to learn that I was paralyzed and really just starting a whole new life. Um, so I'm paralyzed completely from the chest down. So below kind of armpit level, I don't have any movement or sensation. And I have gone through various periods in life where I've tried to challenge that as well and spent four or five hours a day pedaling a bike to represent the gait of walking, pedaling with your arms and it moves your legs and try and stimulate my nervous system and kind of investigate all sorts of ways. But um, yeah, I I like to I like to explore. That's, I guess that's a good summary. Mm. It's really interesting because um, quite timely, we have a local um, ultra marathoner here in Australia. I'm connected with him and his wife on Facebook. His name just doesn't come to mind. And he's recently become paralyzed as well. And he's documenting the journey in the hospital in a real kind of full on way, right? Like kind of like the food, his bodily functions, everything that's really happening. And I think what he's doing is he's obviously trying to express himself and, and, and find a new way to, I think, channel purpose, or I can feel like he's curating his journey in a way to start to find meaning in it for himself. And, um, and so, you know, you talk about you, you actually said that you'd rather be dead than paralyzed. And you soon learn that with friends, you know, creativity and perseverance that you could 
achieve anything? Like what shifted your mindset during that process? Like what got you from, oh my God, I'd rather be dead to, oh shit, I think I can, I can still achieve and be who I am. Yeah. So at the time it, it wasn't as radical as that. Although there were a couple of incidents that were fairly profound in shifting my mindset. One of them was a very simple thing. A woman in the hospital who couldn't move anything. Um, or she could notice that's not true. She could move her arms a little bit, but she didn't have any dexterity in her hands. She'd broken her neck, so she was paralyzed from the neck down, which had affected a lot of her arm and hand function as well. And so I think when you're surrounded by people in more difficult positions than yourself, it's really easy to start to reframe your own situation and go, well, actually, I might think this is terrible, but there's there's levels and I can still do things. And she spent six months trying to peel a banana. And one day there was this big celebration in the hospital because she'd managed to peel a banana. So I guess that was a moment when you go, okay, maybe I don't need to feel quite so bad about my scenario here, you know, with determination, with consistency, with effort, with friends, with with the function that I've got, which is much more than some people have, I, you know, I really can focus on what I can do instead of what I can't do. So that helped. And then three months after my accident, a very close friend died in a climbing accident. He hadn't been for three months because of my, what had happened with me. And so I think that was another incident that made me reframe my own situation and go, Hey, I'm alive and I have to make the most of this life. So you know, there's lots of stuff written and about the impact of trauma or difficult life events that when these things happen to us, not just becoming paralyzed, but all kinds of things from health problems to losing somebody you love or any any big challenge that can trigger this kind of insightful process for us, this more introspective process is asking the bigger questions about meaning and purpose is actually, I think, an incredible opportunity to to wake up from a bit of being a bit unconscious about what we're doing and why we're doing it or how we're doing things and to really allow us to start to ask these bigger questions and explore deeper within and I guess kind of spark that inner journey as much as the outer journey of life. So even though that those were my words the night before I was paralyzed and I still wouldn't choose or wish for anybody to be paralyzed, it's um, it comes with lots of challenges. But at the same time, it also comes with a different perspective on life and I don't, you know, I, I don't think there's anything bad about that. When we get different insights and different perspectives, whether that's through having a disability or um, living in a different culture, you know, there's so many ways that we can shift how we view the world. And becoming paralyzed for me was clearly a big one. <laughs> Were you introspective before the accident? You know, I think I was too young to really know myself. So it's, it's what I was kind of that age where I don't really know whether I was introspective or not or how that related to where other people were. But when I look back at my teenage years, right through high school, I always felt like I never really, I probably didn't really conform to the mainstream. I, I didn't really want to go drinking. And I mean, I did because I wanted to fit in, but I'd often just felt like that wasn't for me so I suppose that's like any any teenager we're finding ourselves we're getting to know ourselves and so I'm not sure if I really could comment on, on who I was then but yeah I mean introspection has definitely become a big part of me reflection considering why and what and how and but I think most people that meet me probably think I'm just and I am very action orientated as well so 
I, I think the introspective part of me is going on all the time, but I don't let it, it doesn't seem to get in the way of moving. And sometimes the moving helps the introspection evolve too, doesn't it? Uh, I think that depends who you are. Certainly for me, my introspective process and and Stephen Kotler talks about this, the, the pattern recognition. For me, it's really helped when I'm moving my body, Not obviously not in a forceful way where you're really going full hard on some training intervals, but to go, for me, going for a bike ride is a way of waking up that part of my brain that kind of logical thinking doesn't wake up and I have all sorts of insights and reflections when I'm doing something like that, especially being in nature and outside. Mm, there's a lot in that and I, I completely agree with you. So when you're going through this kind of uh, you know transformation in, in the way that you were now going to have to face life, particularly in those early days, what were some of the habits that you started to develop that really helped you kind of face the way that you were now forced to live life. Like effectively you're now paralyzed. You're going to have to deal with it. Like just, was there any kind of routine or was there any kind of consistency and what did that look like that really enabled you to start to kind of just deal with what was in front of you? I think the the main thing that I did, and at the time I was young, so a lot of this was done without any knowledge or wisdom of that's out there right now. But I think I I kind of created boundaries around things. So my grieving process and the emotions that I needed to feel, I I did that in my flat, mainly on my own, it, and my curtain closing and opening was my trigger for that. So when my curtains were closed and it was dark, then it's like, okay, now I can do what I need to do to feel what I'm feeling and grieve and cry and, and have that experience. And and I think, you know, process that. And then in the morning when I opened my curtains, it was like a trigger to me. Okay, get on with it. And it was kind of a fake it till you make it approach. And so I don't, to a degree, I fake it until you make it was kind of what got me through, but I don't agree with that entirely. I think you really need to be connecting with what's authentic and true and um, not faking things. But I think when there's something that tough, we can't, I don't know if wallowing in pity and, and feeling, you know, just accentuating all of the negative thoughts about it is helpful. So I had this process of just creating some boundaries to allow myself the grieving process and then to what the, what the flow research collective and Stephen talks about in is you know the grit but just digging in trying to be the best of yourself even when you feel terrible trying to think the best thoughts and reframe them even when bad ones are coming up and I guess in the process I really discovered that our mind is super malleable and um all that neuroplasticity that we had that I never even knew what that was back then. I, I guess I just worked with it to reframe everything. And I think that's become a natural skill that maybe until recent years I hadn't really realized is that maybe because every single day presents all these challenges, the world is not designed for wheels. You turn up places as flights of steps. You've forgotten to tell somebody because it's just your life and it's how it is. I mean, literally every day is a constant string of challenges especially if you're not just in your own little zone and in your own little home and comfort zone which I rarely am so it's become I think I've just trained my brain to become super super good at 
free, uh, reframing every situation and just seeing possibilities and ways around things, which I realize now is actually, you know, it's become a gift and maybe a kind of superpower, but it is something that my circumstances have, have helped train, I think. There's something in that. I I do believe it's a superpower. And I think that, I mean, how we perceive and how we frame the world is our world, right? And, you know, like the ability to shift that and create a new lens is something that is of real interest for anyone. And it's like, well, how do you do that without necessarily having to get paralyzed, right? Like, how do you start to develop and evolve that sense of gratitude and uh, create that new baseline for the reframe without actually having to go through um, the trauma? And I don't know if that's possible, but I think that's really interesting and something that the audience needs to consider the next time they, you know, go get a coffee and it's cold and they get pissed off or whatever the hell the, the incident might be, right? You you said something earlier, and I think I, w- I want to go there and park there for a minute. This whole piece on compartmentalization, because that's what you're talking about. You're saying that you're kind of, this is, you know, you got through it through <clears throat> creating a time and place to suffer or to grieve and then to kind of move on and and you did say that, and I agree with you that sometimes we just have to get shit done, move as, you know, if, but we also have to know how to sit with ourselves. Like, how do you know when it's time to sit with something and you've been sitting with it too long and you need to now act? Like, where's that, that line? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it intuitive? Because I do agree with you. Like, we can't just continue to fake it till we make it, but there's you got to act and you got to move and you know, the way through shifting through emotions is action, but you also need to sit and process it for you. How do you know when that line is drawn? I suppose over the years I've gotten more, you know, you become more aware of what your base, what, what a kind of good balanced baseline emotional state is for yourself. So I know fairly quickly now when things are not where they should be or could be should be is the wrong word but where I would like them to be you know where where I'd like to so I if I'm pushing through something I might notice that I'm just more anxious or I'm just feeling a bit more pressured or like the subtlety of it changes and as soon as I see that I'm like there's something in me that needs to come out I don't know what it is like there's something that's not sitting right with me And sometimes that might relate to a specific practical thing like a conversation or an issue that you've got going on that needs to be resolved or you need to, I need to think about it or decide what action to take to, or not to take to, to, to shift that. And other times it's something that's much more internal. It's like, well, I don't know what's going on inside me, but there's something, something there that I can feel it. It's like, affects my nervous system or it affects you know it has that physical impact and I think that's taken me many years to get attuned to that so now if I become aware that something's just not quite right I'm not in for me when I'm when there's not something really when there's not a kind of struggle or challenge going on I feel a a sense of peace and more naturally feel spontaneous positive emotions and things and so when that starts, when that baseline starts to shift and change, I kind of get, I get aware of it. And then I'm like, okay, what's this about? And then I try and sit with it. And when I say sit with it, I don't sit in silence. I have kind of practices that I use, um, I guess a bit more energetic or kind of listening to my body and 
I might listen to music or gently move my body or or just find a process to really connect with my body and feel where I'm feeling something. And then it seems to unravel itself. That's interesting. Just wondering what it would be like to have emotional stuff come up as you would without the lack of sensation necessarily, right? Because you don't necessarily have sensation everywhere, do you? No, I'm I'm paralyzed on the chest down, but you know, the body's very intelligent. So it, it develops new ways of telling you things. I mean, I, not everything, like I can burn my, I've got horrendous scars on my body where I've burned myself and had no idea that I was physically burning myself. Um, but I also get kind of physical sensations sometimes happen when something's wrong, but they're different from what they would be for you. But if it's emotional, it's like much more, it's much less low for something physical is very localized, isn't it? And it's like the pain response and that maybe doesn't work, but if there's something emotional, it's much more holistic, I think. So you feel it in your nervous system. I'll, I'll notice that I'm clenching my jaw more or I'm just feeling maybe a bit like my heart's just not quite as steady as it should be. Or So just like you, I, or just like anybody else, I, I have ways to sense when something's affecting me. Do you feel you've become more in tune with that because of the, you know, like as someone that might, be deaf has kind of extra sensory senses in other areas or whatever. Like, have, do you feel like you've had to? I, I can't really answer that question because I don't know what it's like not to be paralyzed for 30 years now. So I don't know what, what I would be tuned into or not. I mean, how much of this is just a life process where we become just a little bit more savvy or able to understand ourselves or read ourselves and hear signals and how much of it's because I am paralyzed. I don't know the answer, but um, I, what I suppose I do know is that being paralyzed because, because you're missing a lot of function, you have, I have like another sense. It's like another level of awareness that you wouldn't have. So I'm always, I've got like an awareness of, I always know what I'm sitting on and I'm conscious of not getting a pressure sore. So it's almost like you develop another level of awareness for what you're wearing, what you're sitting on, what your catheter's doing. Like there's this whole kind of other level of awareness I need to have to be able to stay safe and look after my body, but it doesn't get the signals normally. And maybe that level of awareness has developed other levels of awareness. I don't know. Well, now your baseline shifted, so you don't know how you, yeah, like there's, it's such a long time ago. It's difficult to, I suppose, to compare, right? Hmm. So you wrote something, um, there was something in your website that I really, really liked. Uh, you said you live life as a modern day alchemist. Uh, you're kind of passionate about turning challenges and opportunity, transforming the difficult stuff into gold. I really, I think that's a big statement. I love that statement. But like just reflecting on how you face something extremely challenging, do you have an intuitive process? I suppose what I've realized is that, yes, I've developed all these intuitive processes and in the last couple of years, um, where I've been researching some of the theory that's out there, and um, part of that's been via the via Stephen Kotler's work and the Flow Research Collective and others in other areas, I've realized that all my intuitive processes, as I've now got names and theories and research that proves them, and I go, oh, that's what I've been doing for years. Oh, that's interesting to know there's a study being done that looks at that. So, for example, you know, Socratic questioning and um, 
what 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 how can I challenge these assumptions what's a different perspective on it all the different views that you can take by asking questions there are more modern versions of that um there's a process called access access consciousness which is something I ended up accidentally kind of training doing some training in but essentially it's all about connecting the body by touching the body in certain places but asking questions and the whole basis is what if you always ask a question what if you know when you ask a question you open up doors and you open up insights and you open up possibilities and if you're not asking questions then quite often you're closing things down and you're being defined by something so I realize that these things are now actual processes and they have labels and names but for years I would do these things just be like okay how could I see this differently what might I learn through this what might the advantage of this be what you know what new insight or discovery or exploration am I going to make through this years ago I did a master's in development training and um, through that process came across the hero's journey and you know you just go okay well I'm going to meet guides and I'm going to meet dragons and there's going to be there are going to be challenges but I'm I'm always I'm always going to find something and I suppose that parallels spiritual views of life as a as a journey that's just full of struggle and challenges but you know that's what life's about because through those processes we develop new consciousness and perspectives and so on so yes I've got intuitive processes that I use and I think they've all they've all been identified by other people and research and given names and labels and theories so but I didn't know about them in that process what's your relationship to curiosity well I've just been I've just been preparing a presentation this evening about curiosity and really wow. uh, re- recently did a little a little well a podcast but it's not on public uh, access about it so um yeah I mean massive yeah, I mean, that essentially, that's what I've just talked about. It's kind of connected to that Socratic idea and the 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 asking a question. So, and I think I probably first came across that in a really, really um, action orientated way while skiing across the Greenland ice cap in a sit ski, and it was super, super tough. I wasn't an athlete at the time. I was doing an office job. I was a geologist and. Um, I I elected to take a month and ski across the Greenland ice cap, but basically I, I trained for it. But you know, nothing can prepare you for going from eight hours in an office to ten hours of skiing every day. So I was in a lot of pain. My my hands wouldn't open. My tendons were all tight, and I just started on that journey. You was you know you're you're on your I wasn't on my own. I was in a group, but you can't really speak to each other. You're skiing in a straight line. So for very much sort of ten hours a day, you're in your own thoughts. And it was like, okay, I could have a really miserable time if I just keep focusing and thinking about all the pain I'm in and how difficult this is and what could go wrong and we might die and all these kind of things that I was thinking. And it triggered me into this big process of curiosity and it just freed me. So I call it the freedom of curiosity. So by just going, this is interesting. I've never felt this bad before. I wonder what will happen next is freeing because suddenly you've got interest in the future or the or you know the possibility of what could unfold whatever that might be and the, there are studies done on it there was a, a study i came across recently at a university in california somewhere and they they used students and asked them various questions and then measured their brain patterns and waves whilst they were um following this process some of the questions were very you know opening up curiosity and others were other students weren't following that process and the difference in the in the brain waves and 
the, the, the neurochemicals that were released really illustrated that curiosity actually lights up the brain and it enables us to feel better. It releases neurochemicals that help us feel good. And so in feeling good, curiosity is good for us because it actually gets us in a better mental state to tackle things as well. Yeah, I'm an ultra runner. The next time I'm in the pain cave, I'm going to I'm gonna do that. Instead of trying to uh, shout at myself to push through it or play kind of other mental games, I think what I'll do is just start to kind of use that Socratic line of questioning and leveraging that curiosity out there because I think that's a really good way of kind of reframing where you are. I don't it doesn't it doesn't work for everything. I think it's a great process for most things, but there's another, there's other levels then that I have to go to. So, for example, last week I was train I'm training for an, an expedition to Antarctica. We were in Norway on an ice cap. One of my huge challenges is bladder management, um catheters and you have so many layers of clothes on, it's so easy for something to go wrong. And so I was like really living in alertness of this and I'd planned all these things to make sure nothing did go wrong. And then I woke up one morning and I'd wet myself and that meant the sleeping bag was wet. It's a down sleeping bag. You're in the middle of an ice cap. You're out there for weeks. What do you do about that? You can't wash it. You, you know, you've got only got so many changes of clothes you can bring with you. And I was like, I really got into a bit of a down space for a little while going, I am out of my depth here. This like, And then I was like, stop going down the negative route start asking what do you need to do to make this possible what do you need to do to make this safer and then I use a process which I did come across in a book about confidence called cats and ants so cats is capability affirming thoughts and ants is automatic negative thoughts and I list I've just started since I got back from Norway I'm listing all of the problems I can see all of the negative thoughts I'm having the fears and the worries. And then it's like, okay, what do I need to do to make myself feel better about that or to practically improve that situation? So now with that week of space since getting back from the ice, I've got an action plan of things I need to do to reduce that risk and basically risk management. But it's just through asking questions and noticing noticing where the fear and the worry is cropping up and then, yeah, asking what, what do we need to do to solve this? What a process. I mean, because for you, your expeditions, like, do you have to have support out there? Like, how does that work given kind of the, the, the circumstances that you're in? Like, Well, I mean, most of the, most of the expeditions I've done, I, I don't do on my own, like cycling. I have done cycling things on my own because I can manage that alone. Um, but again, that would get challenging if you're if you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and there's buildings with steps. So I, I don't, I'm not that interested in doing things on my own anyway. Like I like my own space, but to me, part of the adventure of these things is actually the external dynamics of who you meet and the things that you learn, but also the internal dynamics of the people that you're with and the intense sharing of the journey and the discovery that you're going through together. So luckily, I'm not that interested in doing these things on my own. You're not, yeah, you're not that much of an introvert. (laughs) No, but I do, I don't, I prefer doing these things with people, but in a together way so that you kind of have it and in a way that's as together as possible with the environment that we're traveling through. So I would rather not have support vehicles or luxury hotels waiting. I like to be fairly self-supporting as in, you know, in within the team and then to see what unfolds and who we meet and what we discover and what 
you know, what side adventures come off the main one. And that's a big part of it for me. So it's not really about having some, I think some people think I've got some big, like amazing money machine behind me and some big support crew and a big van that I might sleep, you know, it's none of that. It's literally just me and a mate and a trailer and a tent in it. And you set off when you see what happens. I'm going to go back in time. So when you moved towards, you know, becoming a, a full-time athlete, right. For a decade, the Paralympics, 2012, 2016, like what was that journey from being paralyzed in the hospital to becoming a Paralympian? Like, can you walk us through that process? Like what happened? It was very unexpected. There was a massive gap. I never planned on it. I think a lot of people find themselves in Paralympic sport fairly quickly post-accident because it becomes a positive focus and, you know, you kind of identify with your body and it makes you feel better and maybe it's a good distraction from all of the pain and heartache of what you're going through. For me, it was completely topsy-turvy. I didn't, I didn't come to Paralympic sport until... Um, the idea came up in 2008 when I was watching the Beijing Paralympics. So I was paralyzed in 1990. I've even forgotten the year. 93, I think it was. So, um, yeah, we're talking, you know, a good 15 years or more down the line. So for me, it, it stemmed from a passion for cycling. And um, when I saw that hand cycling had finally become a Paralympic sport, uh, it was a, it was just, it was a, it was the first time it was in Beijing. And I knew the next Olympics was in London. Literally, it started with a question it, or, a, or a feeling. It was like, wow, I wonder if I could get to take part in an Olympics in my own country. Wouldn't it be amazing to see if that was possible? And so that's how it began. And I was terrible. I did two races, I was last in them both. There was no finish line. I was, you know, took myself to the national championships and was lapped multiple times by uh, another British hand cyclist who'd won a won a gold in Beijing, and you know, it just the, the odds just looked absolutely terrible. But I guess I just kept asking those questions, like, how do you get to be better? And it's only the curiosity process that enabled me to stay in Olympic sport for so long, because in truth, the competitive process, or you know, I've never been led by any ideas that winning a medal will make me a better person or make me feel better or be the solution to anything. It's just like, I've just been led by a love of what I do. And then this curiosity to figure out how you get to be better at something or how you can tweak things to make improvements and yeah, ask those questions. What were you doing in the form of, um, athletic endeavor or climbing like were you you were obviously physically active for those 15 years like you were still doing what you're doing now or not yeah I had I had various adventures um every few years I would I would kind of just be called on an adventure so hand cycled across the Himalayas various times in different parts of the Himalayas from Pakistan and India Tibet um sea kayaked from Vancouver to Alaska over three months. I had a proper job through all of this time, but I just, but they were a very generous employer and they kept giving me unpaid leave to go off and have these pretty incredible adventures. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't like a full on crazy training athlete every day. I enjoyed going for bike rides. I went to the gym when I could. I swam when I could. I just did things to keep a fairly decent base level of fitness, but I didn't know anything about proper training or how to structure it. Or And actually now it's interesting at the other end of the spectrum coming out of Paralympic competition, 
I, you, it's funny, isn't it? We can't change who we've become and we can't unlearn what we've learned. But sometimes I think there's just so much incredibly great stuff in naivety and lack of experience, as well as, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that comes at the other end of the spectrum when we've got lots of experience and knowledge. But I'm almost now trying to unravel the, you know, how do I integrate this life of 15 years of high-performance sport and somehow balance a, a more you know a life that I want that's sustainable and happy and holistic and all those things breaking some habits can you break that down so what are the things that you wish you were more naive about maybe everything because I think in some way I don't know it's really it's, I, I don't know the answers I'm exploring this with you now I I think with naivety there's there's less expectation, there's less fear, there's less judgment, there's just this open space of, oh, that, you know, that's the kind of naivety of youth and maybe part of the vigor of youth where you can just go into things with with less worries, less concerns, less history, less uh, frameworks to, to start to put things in. So I suppose I... As I go through life now, and we, you know, or as, as any of us go through life, and we accumulate experiences, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, or maybe they're not good or bad, but they, you know, they've they've been maybe more difficult or more fun. Um, I think there's still something very precious in arriving fresh to something with just that absolute open eyes, open-hearted wonder at what might unfold. And it's been interesting, actually, in recent years, some of the adventures I've taken have, I rarely do things with, I seem to rarely do things with people who are experts. I like, I like the co-discovery and I've been doing things with people, for example, who've never ridden a bike in their whole life, or they've only maybe ridden one as a kid and they've never ridden since they were five years old. And then I see the world through their eyes again, and I see their wonder at going into a different culture um, a couple of friends in Scotland, they'd never done anything like that. And we rode the length of the Ganges from its source in the Himalayas to its uh, sacred heart in Varanasi. And it was incredible to share that journey with them because it was like I, all the people that were coming to us and, and, and curious, it was just this heart-opening, mind-opening experience because I was seeing it like in a fresh way through their eyes. No, I can completely relate to that. I think over time you develop this kind of performance orientation that actually creates limits. It's like, you know, the, the trap of the performance gear, you know, and the, the, the feedback that's coming from your watch and your heart rate, like it's all this stuff like becomes kind of the limitations to doing shit with freedom. And I suppose that I open eyes and wonder. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And I, I, well, I'm always saying things I probably shouldn't say, but as part of my journey with the flow research collective and coaching, you know, there's so many people that, and, and, and clearly feedback is a valuable mechanism to, when we get feedback, we can track our progress and that gives us motivation and that keeps us going. And there's been times in my Paralympic life when that's been fundamental as part of my motivational process to see that progress. And I really believe it is. But there's also times when I think data and progress and pressure it's like, whoa. And I'm definitely in a space at the moment where I've done, I've done that for years. Actually, I kind of want to try and unravel some of those patterns and habits to allow myself to be more and enter the spaces of, yeah, of, of <laughs> that we're talking about where you've got less performance pressure. Do you think flow is better 
or more accessible in play, full performance versus performance performance? Or either way, like, 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 do you think that it's easier to kind of achieve a, a state of flow when you're not dealing with, when you're not aware of kind of this artificial sense of performance? I had a very interesting interview yesterday with a, a student who's studying flow and she asked a not dissimilar question. She's like, do you think you your flow is better in a performance environment like the competitive sports environment, for example, or maybe on your adventures where you just relaxed and there's not so much of a big goal? And I would say I experienced flow in both and um, I don't think they're comparable. They're, they're different. Different, they've got different qualities. I think the flow that I experience when I'm in a more relaxed environment, so it's not like performance focused, is um, it's a bit, it's usually like longer in duration and it's more like a macro flow experience and it, and it feels connected to, you know, it's usually comes with senses of awe and nature connection and something much kind of deeper and more spiritual almost. And then I experience like with the competition environment or performance environment, like work where you've got a deadline and you go, okay, I've got, I'm going to give myself two hours to go deep in flow on this, this thing. It's a different kind of flow. It's present. It's immersive. It's cool, but it's kind of mini. (laughs) Yeah, I find what impacts flow, particularly in in uh, what I do with the with the running, is the external reality that someone's racing against you, right? Like, so like you you kind of for me, it's easier when I'm on my own. I find because I'm not worried about external events as such. When you see kind of people running by you, or you feel like you're you become aware of this competitive process. For me, that's a major distraction because I have to be more aware of the external stimuli, right? Versus being in my internal process. So I think that's, I completely agree with you when you're kind of only focused on your internal processes because you're playing or having fun, there would be more of a macro um, feel to it because you don't have to come in and out of it. Like, you know, so I think I, I definitely get where you're, you're coming from. So I think this has been brilliant. I think, the real gems here around curiosity, introspection uh, has been phenomenal in terms of what the audience can reflect on within their own systems and processes. Maybe just to wrap up that piece on on the kind of performance flow, because I I, I I did experience it, obviously, on various occasions, and a really profound one was in the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. So I won the gold medal there. So many things have gone wrong. There were so many reasons why I should have been distracted, stressed, I, you know, injured my shoulder on the way to Rio. There was all this potential pressure to win the gold. And and then, but then I realized I'd, I'd, I'd practiced for so many years, just getting into, you just said like being on your own without the distraction. I practiced that enough that I could do that, even though there were other people, if that makes sense. So my teammates and the, and the, 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 the British cycling team staff started to say, God, you're like, you're just like in another world when we're at a big race. I'd, I'd turn up, I'd have my headphones on, I'd be listening to music, I'd warm up to a playlist before the race. But it's just like I'd be 
away somewhere like undistracted by anything and anybody and and they were like we don't want to talk to you like we don't talk to you you're almost a bit scary when you're in that place I don't think they meant scary but I think I was just so in a zone that was free of distraction that it enabled me to have a really some pretty incredible flow experiences in that competition environment but I think it took training to not be distracted if you know what I mean to take that focus internally so do you think it's a time thing then? Like it's just repetition practice that gets you there? I think it does. And, and yeah, I think it does. And, and now transferring over into more work things, you know, if, I've, if I want to create a presentation or do a piece of writing, it's, there's rarely a, just like doing a hard training session, there's rarely a moment when you get out of bed and you're like, oh, I can't wait to go and do, you know, 10 six minute intervals today on my bike, or I can't wait to, sit down and really figure out how I'm going to put this presentation together. But actually when you just go, okay, yeah, I think you meant you asked the question earlier about um, when the right time to do something is, or that was a different context, but I, I, the whole procrastination topic, I find an interesting one. Cause if I, I, I can tell, and I, I think if people work with it enough, you can tell when you're really procrastinating because you're being lazy or you can't, you can't face something or when actually you've just not quite figured something out yet. You've not quite aligned so that you can go in and do this thing easily with flow. So there's something about that. And and so now with a work piece, if I'm struggling with it, I might leave it for a few days and I just ask the question, what, what do I need? What information, what extra information might help me just get really lined up with that? And then suddenly you, you find it and you go, okay, now it's time to go in and do it. And, put the put the time in sit down get that get that thing done yeah that, no the, just with that i think when you're air on the side of action you know there's always this kind of fear of not moving or this kind of anxiety of not doing something or just moving into it but i think over time you're right you develop this kind of intuitive process as to when you need space and i think when you develop that level of confidence in yourself that you are a doer and you know that you are a doer and you have that faith and trust in yourself, you kind of know that it's not procrastination when you'll, you'll know and it's subtle. I'm with you. Like, I think you kind of know when you're not properly aligned versus you just kind of taking the piss. And I think the good thing about being a doer and an action orientated person you can generally have the confidence in yourself that you're probably not aligned. Do you know what I mean? As an impulsive person, if you're kind of holding off on something, you're like, okay, well, it's generally you kind of, you know, I've got an event um, that I'm trying to nail in January and it's going to require a, a massive toll on my body. And I've got these babies and I've got these kind of um, business commitments and I've got some other stuff going on and there's something just holding me back from fully committing to the, the process of this, this physical event. And it's not procrastination and it's not, I need to be more gritty. It's, there's a real understanding that things may not be properly aligned. Now, a few years ago, I would be getting frustrated with myself. Just got to double down on everything, everything, you know what I mean? And, but I think as you get older, you might get wiser. <laughs> well, a bit's a night, a night, one of the nice side effects of age, I think. Um, yeah. But I think, I think, so, you know, clients that I work with in a, a coaching, I think 
you know, I think that process of self-trust is a big one for people. And and just starting to trust that you will get things done and they will happen. You don't have to kick your own backside all the time or berate yourself for not doing something. It's just like getting that balance between knowing what's what's yeah when to push and when to not I talk about the hand of sand if you have a handful of sand this was one of the best analogies for me in the racing context if you grip it too tight all the sand runs away and if you don't hold it enough then the sand runs away as well so it's just like how do you hold something with just the right level of intention without squeezing and pressuring too hard but also without letting go of it and uh, I think if we can just do that then usually the right pathway appears (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. We're going to leave it there. We're going to give, we're going to give our audience that to, to ponder. And that's, that's, uh, you know, that is aligned with the topic of curiosity. One of the things that we've been talking about today, but as we land this plane, I really, um, want to thank you for coming on the show, Karen. It's been really a pleasure, really a pleasure. And, um, I would like to ask you, where can our audience find and learn more about you? Um, I'm not great on my social media, but I do have Facebook, Instagram. Instagram, I'm at Handbike Dark. My website is Karen Dark, D-A-R-K-E.com. But yeah, my website's the main place. I try and keep that up to date and write write blogs there occasionally. All right, Karen. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks.